Hello, I'm Zeb Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for people who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express here are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, we have an unusual and really terrific episode today. In a few moments, we're going to drop into a panel discussion that uh, I recorded for a patient experience symposium that occurred in October of 2020, so just this past month. The topic of the panel discussion is racism in healthcare delivery and in healthcare in general. I, I had the opportunity to interview two really distinguished colleagues, Dr. Alicia Cole and Micheline Davis. The discussion lasted for nearly an hour and a half, and I have to tell you this, I've listened to this now three or four times, and I learn new things each time I listen. As you'll see, particularly in the last 30 minutes of the discussion, we shift into a much more personal and emotional space. Uh, it, it was moving, inspiring, and informing for me. Uh, it was also a bit emotionally draining, I have to tell you that. Now, being just completely transparent with you, my plan was to edit this interview down to 45 minutes, but uh, there was so much wisdom, uh, so much raw honesty to be gained from listening to these experts, so much knowledge uh, about a topic that really needs to be understood so much better and acted upon in our society and in healthcare. I just, when I listened to it over and over again, I just didn't have the heart to edit it down. Uh, I hope you'll forgive me. And I do hope that you take the time to listen to the entire discussion. I would love to hear your feedback. So without further ado, let's drop into the panel discussion we just recorded uh, about a month ago. Uh, by way of introduction, uh, Micheline, do you want to share with the group a, a little bit about your professional background? Um, certainly, and thank you so much um, for, for having me to, to join you and Dr. Cole. I, I respect you both so incredibly much, so I'm looking forward to this discussion. Uh, I always say my day job is uh, the fact that I serve as the Executive Vice President and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at RWJ Barnabas Health, the largest academic medical center system within the state of New Jersey. We have uh, an affiliated 44,000 employees, uh, over 9,000 doctors, etc. I call that my day job because truth be told, uh, I also happen to be, uh, I have a career in uh, policy and so take with that um, the, the opportunity to really see how we can, as Bishop Tutu said, right, do more than merely continue to pull folks who have fallen into the stream out of the stream, but to go upstream to figure out why it is that they are falling in. So I have considered myself a health equity innovation strategist and really try to uh, serve as a change agent uh, in every path role, either as chief policy counsel or a former agency treasurer, to literally um, uh, my current role or, or being a, a senior vice president for policy and government affairs, and how do we effectuate change long term in what it is that we currently have um, before us in reference to healthcare disparities, health inequities, and healthcare outcomes, and how can we move forward in order to ensure that uh, that which I am going to be lending my hand to, uh, which right now is driving the social impact and community investment practice, um, which is a policy-led health equity framework across that system that I described a moment ago. And Micheline, you, you also are a lawyer and uh, have done quite a bit of work uh, in local government in the state of New Jersey. That is correct. And actually, um, you mentioned local government, but I, I've done it really at the state level and I've served as senior policy advisor uh, to a former commissioner of health 
um, to um, the, the funnest job in the world, which is being the CEO of, of a lottery, the New Jersey lottery, uh, to being, again, the acting state treasurer, special counsel to the governor and chief policy counsel, finally. I really look at all of those things as being a culmination of two things. One, a drive to ensure that I am in service, right, um, to our patients and the public, and two, um, really just, just other opportunities to ensure the health and well-being of the communities that we serve. And Dr. Cole, uh, could you share a few words about your professional background? Hi, yes. And uh, again, I'm so excited to join this uh, panel discussion with uh, my esteemed colleagues and friends. Um, every time I hear Micheline talk, I'm like, I want to be you one day. Um, so uh, it's just so, so amazing to, to be a, a part of this panel. So um, as mentioned, uh, I'm a, a physician. I have been a practicing family medicine physician for over 15 years, and I have devoted my entire career to serving the vulnerable and underserved, uh, both in rural uh, settings as well as uh, urban uh, settings. Um, most recently, I have joined Common Spirit Health, which is the uh, alignment of Dignity Health and Catholic Health Initiatives uh, that happened in 2019. Uh, so we are a large integrated uh, full continuum health system that is located in 21 states. Uh, that employs over 150,000 employees uh, and uh, serves um, over 20 million uh, patient visits um, a year. So extremely excited to join such a, a organization that has such a huge scale and scope. And at the same time, uh, in its foundation, uh, really supports uh, the care of the vulnerable and really advocates for social justice. Uh, so I joined Common Spirit as the new System Vice President of Population Health Innovation and Policy with direct responsibilities over uh, our strategy for how we take care of our vulnerable populations as well as um, health equity at the, um, at the enterprise level. So I think for me, um, as I mentioned, I've, I've been this practicing physician, so I have always um, been interested in clinical care um, and the service delivery and how do we uh, address the variances in care that happen when people come through the healthcare uh, walls and doors and and I think um, you know often that's not something that we'd like to discuss even though we have you know 50 plus years of data that tells us that these um, disparities and, and variances exist so um, so how do we address that at the individual provider level but also how do we address that at the system level in regards to our own clinical workflows and policies that uh, we unintentionally may put in place to continue to drive some of these disparities and then to uh, Micheline's earlier point how do we uh, use and leverage the uh, the general anchor foundation, if you will, of most of the hospitals and health systems across our country to drive those policy changes um, um, externally, so out, out of our walls, so whether that's at the local government level, the state level, or, or the federal level to support, um, you know, health equity and really going upstream to address these social determinants of health. Thanks, Alicia. So I'll introduce myself briefly. Uh, I am also a physician. I practiced for over 20 years in internal medicine in a variety of settings uh, in the hospital and in the ambulatory settings. My background is in quality improvement, process improvement, care redesign, 
I've been a manager and uh, and an executive. I've spent a number of years uh, as a senior medical director in population health and currently am uh, the chief of clinical care transformation and strategy at Atrium Health and um, social determinants of health and, and the issue of uh, disparities has been at top of mind for probably decades for me, but uh, I've become uh, much more of a student and perhaps a bit of an activist more so over the last few months, uh, given what's happened. And uh, I, I think uh, actually in terms of setting up this conversation for the listeners, I think it would be helpful since there is no visual cue here, a couple of notes. Uh, one is uh, I am a white man. And that would be obvious to you if uh, we were in the same room. My guests, however, are black women. I just think that's important to share. We also, the three of us, are not only colleagues, and again, my respect for, uh, for Alicia, Dr. Cole, and Micheline Davis is unbounded. I've uh, worked with them. I've seen their work. It's just a pleasure, honor, and, and privilege to be with them. I'm excited uh, about this conversation. Uh, we've had a number of conversations leading up to this, which have been just tremendous. So I know we're going to we're going to do what um, John Lewis, the civil rights leader and activist, and uh, said. We're going to get into some good trouble here. So <laughs> why don't we go ahead? Good and necessary. <laughs> Good and necessary, so yeah. Let, let me ask, uh, Micheline, let me start with you and ask you the question. You know, we are in the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic and, and this era. It's really, we're still in the grips of it. Uh, vaccine has, has not been created. We are experimenting with a bunch of different local treatments, but uh, we're really in the midst of it uh, across the country. Uh, the question I have is, what has the pandemic revealed and perhaps exacerbated in terms of uh, racial disparities and inequities in care? Thank you for the question, my friend. Um, I, I really think that as we approach this discussion, uh, and especially through the lens of that particular question, it harkens me back to really when, um, uh, as you know, I am in New Jersey, very close to the uh, epicenter of uh, when the COVID first touched down actually in the continental United States because I am in northern New Jersey and very close uh, to um, midtown Manhattan. And so what I will tell you is as um, COVID hit, one of the things that lots of what very well-intentioned elected officials started saying, and it was, I understand in order to get the attention of everyone, was that it was the great equalizer. And what they were trying to say was the fact that uh, no one was going to be able to buy their way out of it, no one was going to be able to educate their way out of it, no one was going to be able to zip code an, uh, uh, analysis their way out of it, um, so that they did not have to pay attention and or right um, would, would be guaranteed that there was something that they could do to not actually contact the virus. The difference is that when I heard it, I remember uh, having you know a little bit of chagrin there because what I knew was um, uh, what I know that you and my friend Alicia also knew, and that was that it was not going to be the great equalizer. Unfortunately, it was going to be the great magnifier. And that as that great magnifier, it was literally going to place a laser's eye on how the structural and systemic inequities that play out in our society on a daily basis, that when, quite frankly, there is the perfect storm of now a global pandemic, that those individuals who have always not had, right, those individuals who have always been of the have-not, that those who have been redlined into environments where environmental injustice is, is prevalent, 
and um, quite frankly, healthcare accessibility and affordability is not, that we were going to begin to see, right, an impact in certain regions with certain individuals um, that was going to really be second to none. And, and so I think that, that that's exactly what transpired. I recall literally trying to get um, the attention of folks when really the, the experts started first saying that, you know, leave the mask for the healthcare service workers. And certainly, listen, I am in the largest academic medical center system in the state. So, so certainly I was, I was one, right, glad to know that, that, right, there would be PPE for, for the folks who needed it in order to treat one another. But what I also understood was that actually we needed to really open up a vat of PPE in the heart of many of our most, rather than depressed, I say oppressed areas right, from, from uh, systemic and structural. And when I say that, I'm gonna back up for a moment because right now, right, that terminology is kind of like the, the um, soup du jour, right? It, it, is, it is what everybody is willing to say. And, and you, my friend, you know that just a few years ago to say structural and systemic racism was like, you know, just shocking for the world. And now we have folks talking about it, but I'm not certain that folks are really um, cognizant of why it is that we are calling it that and the way in which it has shown up in these communities. I don't know for certain that um, when, I, when I am engaging with certain um, different segments of the population, if they have a, a, a clear, discernible way of, of understanding how, uh, as one of my favorite, I want to call it a work of art, but one of my favorite books, uh, The Color of Law, right, really, really works out the way in which by the determination of the federal government, there were literal certain laws and, and regulations that were put in place, right, to the FHA, et cetera, in order to ensure that there were uh, particular pockets of our population, right, black and brown, black first, that were literally isolated into areas that were previously deemed inhabitable, um, uh, areas that had been really deeply polluted and seeded in, the, in its soil, um, and that these same areas were then going to be those areas where uh, other industrial manufacturing was going to be uh, isolated and then zoned. So that when you have individuals who present with higher levels of asthma, uh, uh, higher levels of, of other issues, right? Um, uh, we, we understand and can see pretty clearly why that is if in fact we don't look at it through a lens of just today, but one that looks at it through the microcosm of all of society and the way in which our laws have designed the systems that have created and now contribute to that inequity, right? So my goodness, you, you, you poor thing, you asked that one question and here I am going on to a history lesson to forgive me. And Alicia, I wanna ask you to color that with, and Micheline as well, what kinds of stats are there or uh, examples do you have of this, you know, the, the as you put it, uh, the, the great magnifier of the inequities and disparities in delivery of care as well as in outcomes of care, particularly, again, just using COVID as a starting point. Yeah, thank you. And I love the, the great magnifier description, uh, <laughs> Micheline. I, I think that nails it on the head because you know, when I when I first thought about this and I first um, started to hear a lot of the data that was coming out and a lot of the the wokeness, if you will, around mm -hmm. the disparities in, in COVID-19, I cringed. And quite frankly, there was at one point a part of me that was um, a little bit frustrated because it, COVID did not reveal or exacerbate anything. Um, you know, I, I think to Micheline's point, it magnified uh, some of these disparities and inequities that exist. So for example, 
if you look at COVID and the death rates um, per what uh, the CDC is uh, most recent uh, statistics, they put out a statement that Black people are dying at 2.4 times the rate of white people. So if you look at deaths per 100,000 people by race and ethnicity, 2.4 times the rate of white people. Well, that's interesting because that sounds almost identical to a statistic around infant mortality, right? We know that Black infants die at twice the rate of non-Hispanic white infants um, in this country. Um, so it, it wasn't a, um, a statistic that I was shocked by or, uh, you know, felt that, oh, this is revealing something because I was like, oh, I've heard that before. Uh, in, in other um, settings. I think one of the other interesting um, uh, statistics is even when you think about mental health and how COVID is um, impacting mental health, you know, we definitely have heard a lot about the increase in uh, opioid overdoses uh, since, um, since COVID hit. But one of the things I'm not hearing people talk about is the impact of the fact that almost one third of Black Americans know someone who's died of COVID. Know someone. I myself know multiple people in, right. in my social circle who have died. Um, mm -hmm. I can name their names. Um, and the, the behavioral health, the mental uh, strain and trauma of that, you know, in dealing with, you know, even as a highly educated, professional uh, African-American woman, you know, I am still struggling with, you know, my family and my extended family members and friends who may not have those same resources and are still trying to follow all of the recommendations and the guidelines that are out there. Um, but the reality is because of disparities in socioeconomic status and resources and even the ability to work from home, right? <laughs> that's not a that's not a resource or, or, or something that everyone is afforded that opportunity. Um, and so, you know, just the, the mental trauma that occurs um, from, you know, these ongoing uh, disparities that exist is something that, you know, is not often talked about. So, you know, again, I'm gonna to have to fill that Michelin, the, you know, COVID is, has definitely been the great magnifier. I do think that uh, with COVID and the additional um, civil unrest that we've seen um, yeah. over the last couple of months, and, and quite frankly, it's just, you know, I'm all. I'm almost to the point of being speechless about the the deaths of black men at the hands and black women. Um, but you know, just even this week, you know, another uh, incident has come up um, that has been brought to to the attention. It happened months ago, but you know, it's been brought to the attention of a, of a black man that was murdered at the at the hands of of the police, um, and it has just been that very consistent narrative in a time of a pandemic. And I think those two things together have definitely created this level of wokeness in a lot of my uh, non-people of color, um, which I am <laughs> definitely excited about. Um, but I do, I, I do 
you know, I posed that question and I even have posted that on, on my social media accounts. What, what are people going to do to stay away? Because none of this information is new information. That's it. None of this information is new information. Yeah. And we talked about this before and I, I could hear you bristling about this, this notion of wokeness and it's, it's like, where were you before? I mean, the stats, for instance, the, the notion that across cities, across the country, the difference in life expectancy, uh, just, uh, you know, a mile or two away, uh, for instance, in New York City, the zip code you live in in, in New York could determine the difference in lifespan of 20 years. Uh, the difference in Chicago, if you live in the loop versus in, in the west side of Chicago, the difference in life expectancy is over 16 years. And so this is not new information. And to your point, and Micheline, I also am going to steal that. It is not the great revealer. It, it, the COVID is not the exacerbator. It's not the cause. This has been around and it has just magnified what we have already seen. And to your point, I think the point you were making, Micheline, is that uh, this is where when people use the terms uh, systemic or structural, this is not by accident. This has been a part of our culture, right? And I, do you want to say something about that? Yeah, um, certainly. So, so thank you. Um, and and I will say this: you guys are my good friends, and so the truth be told, you can't steal anything that I would I would um, uh, happily share with you. So, so there's that. Um, I, I will say I will both say something about um, uh, what I mean when I say structural and systemic, and and only because I realize how. We're almost, for, for so many of us, uh, I know that Dr. Cole probably joins me in this as well, who have been like literally leaning into this all of our careers, you know, all of a sudden to have your colleagues um, either within your institutions or quite frankly, your colleagues in the industry and across the country finally start to look up and realize that, oh, you know, like this, like look how bad this really is. It, 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 it is a, it's an interesting aspect, but it literally, I, I said to my CEO just early to, earlier today, and I was like, it really makes you say, you know, well, did you think that I was making it up? Like, what in the world? Um, to your issue about um, some stats, I, I do, I want to add to that, and then I'm happy to go into, into what I mean around structural and systemic, and quite frankly, by design, right? So at the beginning of April, African Americans in Wisconsin made up almost half of Milwaukee County's 945 cases, right? And 81% of the deaths in the county. The county's population is only 26% Black, right? In Michigan, we saw that there was a Black population that was 14%, more than 35% of the cases, and 40% of the deaths were African Americans. And in my home state of New Jersey, while Black residents make up just under 15% of the population, African Americans have accounted for nearly 26% of the deaths and 22% of the fatalities, right? So, so, you know, what in the world am I saying when, when I say this? I, I think that one of the really easy ways for me to harken back for folks and a really brief um, chance to do it is if I take them not too far back, but just back really quickly to the 16th century, my friends. Um, and, and so when I talk about that, I'm simply talking about, right, the, the aspect of, of colonization, right? So, so when white Europeans colonized the Americas, there were certain laws and policies, right? They were called settlement claims. Right, when they showed up on land and they settled there and then they claimed it, right? Um, but they were also the structural drivers of inequity, right? So, so um, uh, colonizers doing that literally caused indigenous peoples to um, literally lose their sovereignty, their power, right? That was taken away and their families were disrupted and it displaced uh, indigenous peoples, right? Uh, if we look really quickly at um, our constitution, right? And um, listen, we all love our country. Um, we, we definitely do. It's one of the reasons why we challenge it. We try to hold it accountable and we try to ensure transparency because we in fact do believe that, that it is uh, one of the greatest countries on earth. 
but um, in the late 18th century, right, we saw that colonies declared their independence and the settlers, well, they migrated across the North American frontier. Well, the, the law and the policy that was created there was the U.S. Constitution. Um, the structural driver of inequity there, well, it was utilized in order to ensure that women and people of color were denied the right to vote, to own property, and to equal protection under the law, right? So what did we see? What, what kind of unjust effects existed, right? So what well, we know about slavery and indentured servitude, we know that that especially African-Americans, but Native Americans too, were denied opportunities for education, wealth, women too, and freedom, right? Because they couldn't own land themselves. Um, and, and so I, I, I just utilize those very quickly in order to make certain that folks understand that, that, you know, these elements of the underpinnings of our society that we act like are just natural, while they also naturally disenfranchise whole segments of population that help to produce and create environments where health inequities were then going to thrive, right? So, so um, because we're, we're looking at not just traditional power distancing, but we're, we're literally looking at um, the removal of the, in a, of the ability to combat transgenerational poverty in that situation, right? Um, so I, I use that just as an as a example, but trust me, my friend, unfortunately for our, our listenership, I could, go far, I could go way further, right? We could talk about banking deregulation and some prime, prime lending and, and um, right, the Federal Highway Act and redlining um, local capital improvement plans, but I will not bore them because I know we have more stuff to talk about. Well, you know, I think, I think, well, first of all, uh, Micheline, it's, as always, and as, as Leisha says, uh, it's just to listen to you is, is just so informative and, and it makes me want to go out and read more. I think though, the point you're, you're, you're making is there's a substrate of policies uh, and laws in, you know, it's built into the fabric of commerce that has led to these, you know, to these situation. And, and Dr. Cole, Alicia, I want to ask you, how, what's the connection to health and healthcare and health outcomes? What, could you cross over and, and connect that to these sorts of d- disparities and inequities we're seeing in care? Yes, definitely. So I think, you know, the, the biggest thing that um, I have seen a, a good shift over the last five to 10 years um, is around disparity being um, framed as cross-continuum, um, particularly in the healthcare arena. So I think initially there was a lot of focus on health care disparities, and that is what I was re- referencing early in regards to the actual clinical care delivery and what happens when people enter through the, the health care uh, industry. Uh, but the reality is, is we, we know now that there are so many things outside of the clinical care walls that impact health. And and if you look again at the data, quite frankly, depending on which research you want to quote, uh, between 80 and 90% of what impacts the individual's health uh, happens outside of the, the clinical care walls. And so, you know, recognizing that when you start thinking about, well, what are those things uh, in the literature that has shown to drive health outcomes. You look at things around transportation, housing, education, socioeconomic status, 
uh, even when you think about your your physical environment, uh, you know, one of the things that we discussed on an earlier call is just a lot of the uh, environmental things that are happening right now with the wildfires and the hurricanes. Um, but if you think about that from the standpoint of air and water quality, so, you know, for people mm -hmm. who are dealing with asthma, for example, when some of these natural disasters happen, how that exacerbates um, people who have asthma. Well, the thing is, we know that uh, disproportionately, people of color, children, uh, people uh, with lower so and socioeconomic status are affected with asthma. Um, and then you add on a California wildfire, <laughs> for example, and, and you start to see the increase in utilization of, of people coming into the emergency rooms and having to be admitted um, with asthma exacerbations. So there are so many um, factors that go into what actually drives an individual's health. And the reality is uh, the majority of it is happening outside of, of the, the healthcare system per se. So um, I think because that recognition has occurred, you know, a lot of health systems are now starting to be more intentional and strategic mm -hmm. about the work that they're doing out in the community. Um, they're looking at their community benefit portfolios and, and thinking about um, that, that work in a different way. Uh, they're looking at their community health programs and, and how they're being effective and tying that into, again, actual um, health outcomes. But I just I would caution uh, people that it's not just the responsibility of the healthcare system. Uh, and, and again, because the majority of what is driving a person's health is happening outside of, of the doctor's office, um, it really does have to be a collaborative, inclusive uh, a body of work that includes government, that includes education, that includes our, our uh, public health systems, that includes our businesses. Um, and, and that also includes um, our faith community. So I think, uh, you know, that this notion of how we really truly start to impact um, health outcomes um, has to be uh, inclusive of these multiple entities being at the table and trying to work on these things together. Dr. Cole, I think you're raising some really important points here and, and you did shift to solutions, which I'm going to bring us to in a moment. But before that, I, I think what's really important about this is, and I've heard this from uh, so many colleagues and I'm shocked by it, but I understand it at the same time, the notion that somehow individuals are to blame for the disparities in care. It's, and, and we even saw that our Surgeon General, who is African-American, even he misspoke uh, earlier this year in the beginning of the COVID pandemic and made a plea to the black community to, to eat better and take care of themselves better. I, I hate to say this in no disrespect there, but, but really um, showed a lack of understanding of the actual causes of these disparities in outcomes and health. And so I just, before we jump to solutions, I think it's such an important point to make because I believe it is still such a prevalent uh, racial bias in our healthcare system and in general population. Micheline, do you want to take that? Um, listen, I, I'd love to, but I welcome each of you to it as well. I, I, I was so delighted that you were that you were talking about that. And quite frankly, it's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to make certain that folks understood why it is that we are talking about structural and systemic 
um, uh, inequities and, and racism and, and other things that literally lead to this. My, my uh, heart was broken when the Surgeon General of the Continental United States uh, Territories and Commonwealth literally made that reference. I think for far too long, our industry has uh, blamed the victim. Um, I distinctly recall um, uh, having discussions in the past with um, uh, colleagues who were uh, in the clinical line, certainly on the administrative line, who, who would reference how, you know, these people just don't, are, are not compliant. And um, it would always really hurt me deeply for a variety of reasons, but the least of which um, is not the fact that, listen, um, as I look at the history and the trajectory of this country, what I understand firmly is this, that in that setting, in a room like that, I am more likely to be those people than not. And as a result of that, um, you know, I, I bring as well, in addition to the Juris Doctorate and uh, having been a trained trial litigator and, and having a background in policy, I bring my lived experience into that space as well. We have for so long really uh, constructed a system that did two things. One, um, and I say trust is earned, right? And so we have earned the distrust among the most vulnerable population, earned it. We worked hard in order to achieve it, right? You said we as a healthcare system have earned the mistrust. Is that what I heard you say? Correct. Okay. Correct. Just wanted to clarify that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, we, we, we've earned that from um, uh, everything from, uh, uh, of course, right, Tuskegee to eugenics and everything in between, right? We, we've earned it from the way in which um, uh, obstetrics and gynecology was right, developed on the, on the literal backs of um, Black women slaves, right? We've earned it because of um, what so many folks don't really talk about this that much, which was the, the, the role of some physicians during the civil um, rights uh, era and, and uh, during Jim Crow, right, who would oftentimes show up um, when someone's been harmed um, uh, in a protest and, and unfortunately accelerated their, their uh, symptoms in order to produce death. So, so it, it's really keenly important that we start there and that we both acknowledge how we have contributed as an industry to uh, the proliferation of the health inequities that we see today, that we acknowledge it and apologize for it, and then quite frankly, that we really work to dismantle in our own thinking, right? So, so we were really kind when we first started down this path and, and utilized the term implicit bias, but right, it's, it's how we cling to racist ideology that's taught to us since childhood. And the way in which it grows up as such an elemental part of us that in our experience day to day, that we don't see it, but it is certainly that which, which, which affects in, um, the lens through which we view everyone else. So that's the reason why we can stand in a situation of privilege and, and render uh, a decision that is, uh, well, this is, right, this is us, but that's them, right? They don't want to be healthy. They are not compliant. They don't get their prescriptions filled when the truth be told. Um, they're, they're trying to figure out how do I pay for that prescription and my rent too, right? How do I ensure that I am um, uh, going, securing transportation to go beyond my immediate living environment in order to attach to healthy, affordable, organic, fresh fruit and produce when I live in the midst of a food swamp, right? Um, it's it, it really a, a firmer understanding of, of what that, me that means through a lens of empathy, um, but also one which, which, which properly acknowledges how systems and laws, policies and practices, and even in healthcare, our own internal processes help to keep individuals um, where they are. Right, and really do not help to address the wealth gap or our educational gaps or all of the other things, which we know have an impact 
um, on, on healthcare outcomes, right? So Dr. Icon said it best, right? That your, your zip code is a better indicator of your lifespan than your genetic code. I would add, and, and kind of picking up on uh, your comments Zev, around uh, best practices and, and solutions, um, I think, you know, Micheline hit it very clearly. Words are so extremely powerful. Um, you know, I still have the opportunity to teach residents and, and medical students and, and PharmD students and nursing students. And, you know, I'm known as the uh, attending that you don't ever use the term non-compliant with. Um, and so just doubling down on that. And I always, if you take anything away Yay. from this conversation today, remove that term from your vocabulary. I don't believe in non-compliant patients or individuals. I think people have barriers to achieving good health. Um, but if you sit down and talk to someone and say, do you not want to be healthy? Um, I don't think you're going to get anyone who, who answers <laughs> that they don't want to be healthy. And so, so I think that's part of um, some of the best practices is, is how do you shift the language around how we take care of people? And then how do you educate uh, the current and future workforce. So, you know, there should be a health equity, um, social determinants of health uh, curriculum for all care providers across the country. That should be a mandate. And there are definitely um, multiple organizations that are doing that. Uh, we at Common Spirit um, are, are implementing that uh, across our um, starting with our uh, labor and delivery uh, units, um, but with the goal to, to, to get to that point. Um, so I think that's definitely a, a best practice. When you think about data, um, you know, it was so interesting, even going back to the COVID scenario on how many states initially were not reporting their COVID data stratified by a race and ethnicity. Um, you know, now we are at a point where most of them are, um, however, if you are not looking at your data, your quality measures, um, your patient satisfaction, even your own teammate and employee satisfaction, and stratifying that by race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, I mean, there's a multitude of different ways that you can look at data. Um, but if you're not looking at it, how do you know if there's a, a problem? within your own organization or an opportunity to improve in certain areas. So I would say uh, data analytics uh, and a standard uh, uh, way to collect race, ethnicity, lang language, gender, sexual orientation data is so critically important. Um, and, and that should be something that people are doing. And then just um, another just solution um, I would throw out there, um, or I should say solutions, we actually have programs and initiatives um, that are very uh, research and evidence-based that have shown to improve disparities in, in certain um, areas. So for example, I mentioned uh, maternal infant mortality for African-American women earlier. Well, there are great home visitation programs like the Nurse Family Partnership, for example, which again, has years of data that shows increased rates of breastfeeding, lower rates of preterm birth, uh, lower rates of morbidity and mortality for, uh, for the mom and the baby uh, within the African-American community. However, a nurse family partnership or a home visitation program is not a standard way of care 
for our pregnant women across this country. And for the communities that do have those type of programs, often they are run by a nonprofit community organization that's supported through philanthropy. Um, and I think we can all, although we recognize that that's such a huge service and we're thankful for those programs and those community organizations stepping up and doing that, um, that's not the best way to standardize a very validated, well-evidence-based program uh, into a clinical workflow uh, in, in most of the communities that, that, um, that, these, that these programs are. So, you know, I think the question I often pose, uh, you know, when I'm talking about possible solutions is, you know, we have things that work. We have things that we know work. Why haven't we implemented them? What are the barriers? And I think that gets back to there's these systemic biases uh, in systems, right, that uh, keep perpetuating the notion of it's the individual's fault and not that it's our collective responsibility to fix these broken systems. Yeah, and I would add just, uh, you know, another evidence-based intervention are the community health worker programs and I know we're we're all aware of the work that Dr. Kongovi and her teams have done at uh, UPenn, uh, demonstrating and publishing how effective that is uh, in terms of contextualizing care in people's lives in their communities. Uh, Micheline, you know, building on you know on what we can do from your perspective as as an executive and your experience in programs and and policies, what can uh, healthcare systems do? And, and I would say, and I know you've done a lot of work in this area as well, which is uh, to use the hospital uh, as a uh, anchor in the community, bringing other corporations and other industries into it as well. But what actual things can, if executives or managers are listening to this, what can they begin to do? Thank you for that. Um, uh, I, I think, and so I'll, I'll start, if that's okay with you, at um, the, the anchor segment, um, uh, and then we'll, we'll likely go further into... Um, the uh, social justice, right, uh, uh, addressing how to dismantle structural and systemic racism, um, just a little bit. Um, so so uh, I, I think um, that hospitals can immediately shift the way in which we have uh, historically done business. So what is what am I talking about? So the reason why um, uh, we have embraced an anchor mission is because it permits us to utilize our place-based presence, literally, um, uh, how and from whom we, we purchase goods. How and whom do we recruit, hire, retain, promote, matriculate, um, and what what are we actually doing in our communities? Are we actually investing in our communities, or are we just doing selling for community benefit type of of contribution? And so, um, you know, these things really help to shift how we think about um, community health and well-being. But I will tell you this, my friend, that once we actually begin to apply a racial equity lens to the way in which we commit to an anchor mission, then you actually got right? Um, as my grandmother would say, now you're cooking with butter. Um, now you actually have an opportunity to, to shift so much of, of what we're seeing about the structural inequity that has historically existed. Um, so, so what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the fact that if, if you are in fact going to adopt an anchor strategy that requires you to purchase locally, one, so, so one thing, one, as a result of, um, you know, wanting to have economies of scale, lots of entities form uh, or partner up with group purchasing organizations, and I, I am not anti-GPO. What I am, however, is cognizant of being able to make certain that we read that legal language that evidences the fact that we can still um, uh, purchase items locally, 
preferably with those who fall into a sweet spot of being minority, woman-owned, um, uh, uh, within certain uh, geographic right um, uh, districts, which you know are, are have been hardest hit by COVID and, quite frankly, um, uh, history, um, as well as um, how do we take a look at our own internal um, policies around procuring? Are we ensuring that if we are going to give a small minority woman-owned, veteran-owned business a first opportunity to do business with us, are we actually setting them up, up for sustainability or are we actually setting them up for failure? Are we in fact recognizing that they cannot wait um, 60, 120 days to, to receive payment, 90 days? Are we ensuring that we are, are providing a 30-day right opportunity for them to, to receive payment so that we are not closing them down in order to bend with us exactly one time? Um, you know, what are we doing in other areas? How are we being more transparent and welcoming them uh, into this space um, and ensuring that we're not just saying, well, we want the traditional player to be the, the prime contractor and we'll let somebody else get, you know, have a subcontract um, at, at least in order to actually receive a, um, a, a bid. And then quite frankly, they wind up not actually being utilized on the job, right? So, so there are mechanisms through which we can utilize. These don't cost us any money. These literally just require us to be more mindful about how we orchestrate our own operations, right? So, so I think that that's a key way. I think that the way in which we do local hiring is really important. Uh, you, you both understand we are always really happy when we have recruited a new top doc from across the country. But it's really important that we're also taking a look at in our own backyard with zip code analysis precision of what are the communities that have been hardest hit. How can we ensure that we are reexamining our own um, uh, human resource descriptions, processes, um, and recruitment efforts? Are we in fact recruiting from um, uh, historically black colleges? Are we in fact recruiting from um, uh, a lot of the community colleges or state colleges that have higher percentages of, of persons of color, in particular uh, black and brown, um, uh, in, in many of the states in our country? Right? What are we doing in order to ensure that we are thinking about this differently? Lots of times, you know, HR just kind of said, well, nobody applied. They're not taking a look at the fact that, right, you, you should probably make certain that, that we are diversifying uh, uh, who we are partnering with in, in order to, to, to do that. And then how are we ensuring that we're not leaving them in the same entry-level position for 35 years? How are we making certain that we are coupling the opportunity to, to be on a pathway um, and develop, developing a pipeline towards um, earning more than just a livable wage? Um, but I will also say, I will also say um, that the aspect of of uh, uh, racial equity requires us to take a look at, well, how are we actually representing and standing up in pay equity? Have we actually conducted an audit at all? Have we, done, have we conducted an analysis of, of how our um, uh, employees of color are compensated along the same titles with their majority mainstream uh, participants of color? Is every vice president paid um, equitably? Are your senior vice president? Right? Are your managers, are your directors, right? So easy things. There are ways in order to make certain that every clinical, operational, and administrative decision is made through a racial equity lens. But I really want um, entities to, to first commit to doing a baseline assessment of how does, quite frankly, um, culture show up um, uh, in your organization? How does um, mainstream, mainstay, supremacist culture show up in your organization? Are you demanding that success is based on sameness? Is power closely held, right? Um, uh, do you lack transparency, right? Uh, how are you diffusing power and make certain that others are empowered? Does everyone else have a voice at the table? Are they cut off? and then cut down as a result of that. So there are real tools that, that they can utilize in order to make certain that they they live up to the statement that they issued several months ago. Yeah, and again, I think that that whole point of uh, as you build the community and uh, 
improve the employment of populations in the community. Uh, you know, before we, we talked about transportation, uh, the whole issue of education in the community. I think there is an inherent bias that these are fluff or besides the point, it's not the real work. But again, as Dr. Cole was saying before, the evidence demonstrates that in fact, that is the real work. If our outcome is health and we are in the business of healthcare, uh, then in fact, this is our business. Applying your racial equity lens, I, I think uh, maybe uh, Dr. Cole, you know, you talked before about how would you do that from a clinical care perspective? Uh, Micheline was just talking about institutional, uh, both as an anchor in the communities, but anchor uh, industry or anchor, anchor corporation. Now inside of that, are there examples or ways of identifying and then um, programs to counter some of the inherent biases, racial disparities that we uh, we know are built into the system? Uh, yes, uh, thank you Zev, for that question. It, and definitely, I think, you know, one, I'll go back to the data analytics uh, uh, piece of things. You know, I, I always tell uh, people, especially when you're dealing with uh, physicians, uh, you know, we're scientists, right, by, by training. Uh, and so we, we like uh, in need uh, to see the data. Uh, and we're also overachievers. Um, so, you know, I, I always say use that, right? You know, most of us are used to being the top in our class. We don't like to be read on any kind of report. Um, and um, we're used to being monitored on a multitude of different things, um, you know, at, at this point uh, within the healthcare industry, whether that's our you know, our quality measures, our patient satisfaction, or our total cost of care. Um, so uh, so that, that's just the mindset in which, uh, which we operate. And so I think um, having a standard data collection around uh, these different, um, you know, these different uh, bodies of, of measures regarding, like I said, race, ethnicity, gender, language, socioeconomic status, zip code even. I mean, there's, there, is, there is a plethora of data. You know, the issue is not that there's no data. Um, the issue is how do we look at the data uh, to really drive how we, how we deliver care. Um, so I can't say enough about data. As you're talking, there's images coming in my mind. Again, working in population health and quality for years, we have dashboards that we provide to physicians, as you are very well aware of. And, um, you know, they have quality metrics on them in terms of, you know, uh, controlling uh, sugar with uh, hemoglobin A1Cs and cancer prevention, things like colonoscopies, mammographies, et cetera. But um, I have yet to see a dashboard that tells a provider or a division or department the difference in those metrics along racial lines. And I think we, uh, so we have, we have done that. I've had the opportunity to actually have to, uh, to create a health disparities dashboard uh, where uh, we did look at um, a lot of different measures, but specifically focusing on our preventative quali quality measures and stratified that by uh, race, ethnicity, and gender. Uh, and um, I will tell you, you know, one of the things that we saw was um, a opportunity to improve our colon cancer screening rates in Hispanic men. Uh, that aligns with the national disparity data. Um, so wasn't necessarily shocked to see that. Um, although as we started to actually build then a quality improvement project, around that to improve those uh, rates, 
I will tell you that there were a lot of biases and um, assumptions uh, that were made initially around why Hispanic men were not getting um, their colonoscopies. Uh, and, and, and I think that's, that's what this work allows, um, allows those type of things to be challenged. So we assumed that maybe they weren't coming in to get their colonoscopies because they didn't have health insurance. Again, going by what we know from the national uh, data, around uh, health insurance status for uh, our Hispanic and Latino uh, patient population in the country. However, in that market, what we found was that actually uh, the majority of Hispanic men had uh, insurance coverage. What some of the barriers were to them coming in for their colonoscopy were actually barriers that we have put up as a healthcare system unintentionally. So for example, at the time, we only offered colonoscopies Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. Well, uh, for a lot of these men, they were working. They were the providers for their families. They were not able to take off work uh, during the week. Uh, so one of the very first things that we did was to open up access and start providing colonoscopies on the weekends. Uh, so that people who maybe were off uh, during, you know, on the weekends could come in and, and have access. Uh, one of the other very first things that we realized is that in our patients who had identified Spanish as their primary language, we were not sending out our information, our mailers in Spanish. Uh, they were going out in English. Uh, so again, a very kind of uh, simple solution uh, in regards to making sure that we're sending out information in the patient's language of choice, which we have the ability to do, um, was something that we saw, uh, you know, an, an immediate uptake. And even in our calling, so we had a, a, an entire campaign for, the, for this system uh, for all races and ethnicity, all of our patients and coming in and getting their colon cancer screening um, completed. Um, but what we realized is that we didn't have anyone bilingual uh, working on that call campaign, but yet we had about a 20% um, Hispanic population in some of the markets that we were serving. Um, and so, you know, just, just little things like that, which again, unintentionally, we have put barriers in place, um, but had we not looked at our data, uh, you know, through a, through a health disparity lens, health equity lens, none of these things would have surfaced. Um, and so I think that's one of the, the key things to think about is when we talk about looking at this work is not to point the blame, you know, back at even the individual provider to say, you treat, you know, Hispanic patients differently than you treat white patients. We know, as Micheline has so clearly laid out, that these are systemic, these are historical, these are structural um, it's, it's not an individual thing. And quite frankly, I do feel like, you know, if we go back to the woke conversation, I do feel like to a certain extent that we've used that as an excuse. You know, I've heard people say, but I'm not racist. Um, I don't treat people differently. And you may not intentionally treat people differently and you may not be racist. Um, but the, the system the policies, the, the structures around us 
they are. Um, so even if you are, you know, individually leading your life in a way where you are uh, wanting to be fair and equitable and treat people, um, you know, and help people in the ways that they can be helped, you as an individual are still coming up against these systemic uh, exclusionary practices that are embedded across every single institution in this country. Um, and, and, and so there are things you have to do to mitigate that, even if your own personal um, you know, intentions are good. Well, you raised so many important points uh, with the, that vignette and that example. One of which I think is, and to Micheline's point, we can have the data even at the individual physician level, but it's not just that level. It's really, as you point out, it requires the system to really be reconfigured and um, to look at things through a disparities and racial equity lens. I think the other thing you you make me think about is that, you know, this comment that I, you know, uh, and I've heard this often is, you know, well, I treat people the same or we treat people the same. We're not racist. Well, but that's the problem. Uh, we actually can't treat people the same. Uh, the system has created and it has embedded within it these disparities and inequities. And so, in fact, we have to do exactly the opposite of that. Uh, we have to be very, very intentional, as you point out, and as Micheline pointed out, identifying uh, through data and through examination these disparities. And then once identifying, we have to define them and, and then actually put systems in place to counter them. So it requires more than just... Uh, you know, uh, that sense of treating people the same. And initially, I'm, I'm curious, what do you think about that? And, you know, in terms of even this notion that, uh, that Dr. Cole pointed out, it really requires sort of understanding people and understanding cultures and understanding that they actually are different. And um, we have to actually engage people differently in their care. Any thoughts about that? Oh, my goodness. First of all, um, I, I had to place uh, you on mute because I was clapping. So I had actually given given our standing o ovation. And then uh, the, even when you just said um, treating everyone the same, and, and actually that's that's the problem, right? So when we take a look at structural inequity, you guys are so smart. I so love that I know you. Um, you know, when we take a look at things like structural inequity, um, you know, we really have to understand that that. We are not um, interfacing just because we're dealing with this patient for the first time um, doesn't mean that, that that's where things first began, right? That we really have to have uh, a much broader, broader lens. And so uh, I love the story that Alicia told just really about um, the way in which they, they, they wanted to figure this out. And so what they didn't do is uh, the classic uh, healthcare industry thing of sitting in an ivory tower and making it up themselves. Rather, right, they engage with the community participants in order to discover um, what this what this really is, right? And so we've been really great at only looking at data, um, our CHNAs, et cetera, right? Only looking at 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 our our um, uh, data from the state health department or the CDC, et cetera. But also ensuring that we are in community dialogue helps us to literally do something different through uh, community collaborative co-design, right? It really helps us to make certain that we are recognizing two things. One, how it is that we are showing up in this community. You heard what I said before about trust, right? That mistrust is earned. And, um, you know, one of the ways that it, it's earned historically is also um, by causing folks to feel invisible right? By not speaking to them in the language um, that they speak at home. 
And so the, the longer that you go, because we, we have seen the trends of, of population migration. We've seen how neighborhoods turn over, right? This is not new. It doesn't take rocket science. And so for us to, to witness that outside of our doors and never to, to um, stop for a moment to reposition the way in which we market, right? It tells individuals, and this has happened in my own system. I know it for a fact. Um, uh, it, it communicates that certain individuals are not wanted there. And that's because of the fact that they know that, well, if I'm your consumer and you're trying to attract me, then, then you would actually try to appease me. To, you would try to be attractive to me. You would try to speak to me in the language which you know is my first. Um, and so I love that just every element of that story. Uh, Dr. Cole, we're just really lucky that you are on the planet right now. You honor us. You do. Um, uh, by hearing about the way in which you marry, I, I would say marry the facts to the law because I'm a lawyer but the way in which you, you marry the data to the community, right, in order to come out with, with a, a collaborative answer. Um, so, so, Deb, you're exactly right. Being able to recognize not just that one small thing, but also um, how are we making administrative decisions, right? So who decided that that was going to be the time that we were going to, um, uh, that, that the entity was going to do offer colonoscopies, right? And oftentimes it, it's an inadvertent, um, uh, uh, issue, but it's also um, those that we see that, that, that come out of setting policy through a lens of privilege, right? When COVID first hit, and Zev, I think that, that you and I have talked about this before, when COVID first hit, and, and we, we saw testing sites pop up across the country, um, even in my state, you know, the, the, the one thing that I was really concerned about was the fact that they had these drive-through testing sites, and people were like, hooray, and at first they required you to have um, a, a doctor's referral, and I was like, okay, so that, that's, that's a problem for folks who don't have a primary, right, don't have a medical home, can't, can't take off work to both go do that and then um, uh, go uh, um, uh, take another day to go and actually get the test, but, but quite frankly, I also took a look at, well, you know what else you can't take to a drive-through testing site is a car. I mean, it's a bus. So if, if, in fact, I don't have my own vehicle, my own transportation, which we know is a social determinant, what are we doing about these things? So, so then we started to see, right, walk-up testing centers begin to, to populate um, lots of, of rural and, and urban cities. And that's because we need to do the same thing that architects do when they do human design, right? We need to set public health policy and healthcare administrative, clinical, and operational policy through a lens that ensures equitable human design. So who are the populations that have historically been negatively impacted or affected by this? And how can we like, do this differently to ensure not just that we do kind of a, a equality measure, but an equity measure? How do we address, how do we get to them through that historical disenfranchisement? How do we, how do we make certain that we design a platform that, that looks at, analyses, uh, um, uh, assesses, and then analyzes what the historical treatment has done and how can we uh, alleviate it in, in this segment. Um, you know, it, when I talk about these things, lots of folks think that I'm talking about large-scale, right, government policies, etc. And please do not get me wrong, I am. But I am also talking about our own institutions, right, our own institutions. I, I um, through our social impact initiative, had team members um, take our executives through something called COPE, which is the cost of poverty experience. Because many individuals do not understand how truly expensive it is to live in poverty. They don't understand how the time that it takes for me to take two buses, 
equates to the money that I'm not at my second job making because my child is sick and that when I get to your office and I'm 15 minutes late and you tell me that I've missed my appointment and that now I have to wait two months, my child is still sick. But now also they have less opportunity to receive the benefit of the medication that you gave me the prescription for last time because now I can't afford it because I've missed those, right? I've missed working at my second job. You know, I think the bottom line for me is we have created and have a healthcare system that was designed for some generic middle class, you know, white person who lives in the suburbs, who has transportation, who doesn't have to worry about employment or education uh, or their housing, uh, who doesn't have to worry about other psychosocial stressors uh, around them in the community, who doesn't have to worry about safety in the community. And I think that fundamentally, you know, as I see some of the work, and I want to ask you this question, some of the mistakes and, and challenges that people are making as they are, and again, I think there's a lot of great, great intention across the country in terms of trying to understand the situation, uh, to have communications and dialogue around it, uh, and then move to some action. But I think that fundamentally, what I see happening is us uh, taking our toolkit, the same sorts of tools and strategies we have used in the past, and even some of them new in terms of virtual health care and, and things like that, but sort of slapping them on and thinking that uh, that's going to solve the problem. Whereas I think as I hear you speak, and, and I hear Dr. Cole speak in my own experience, is what we need to do is, is understand that we are dealing with a very, very different type of problem. And our job is to to understand it and then to create solutions that are really consistent with the level of and complexity of the problem. And it's almost like a startup. Uh, we, we need to really restart, reframe the entire way we're thinking about this. I do not think that our current way of doing this uh, and, and our current set of tools that we have and have been deploying are up to the challenge. I would love to sort of bring this uh, conversation to a close by asking you some of the, maybe the mistakes or some of the cautions, uh, some of the advice you would give leaders and managers as they incredibly well-intentioned, I think, uh, across the board are trying to, to figure this problem out and trying to do something about it. Well, I think uh, the first um, thing that I would caution leaders and particularly senior leaders um, around this work is that it's not an overnight fix. Um, and so, you know, we, we did not get to this place uh, overnight and we're not going to get out of it overnight. Um, and I think in, a, um, in an industry where, you know, often we are very focused on short-term uh, measures of success um, that we, we have to, to uh, extend grace and, and for those uh, individuals who have been designated to try to work on these issues, uh, recognize that it's not going to happen overnight. Um, I would also, uh, my second caveat to that would be um, recognizing that particularly as healthcare systems um, are, are, uh, are you know, those of us in the health industry, we can't do it alone. And, and so uh, we are not going to fix, you know, the structural uh, racism and the and housing policies um, by ourselves. However, uh, we can definitely use our place-based um, social and economic strength to help drive those conversations in partnership with with others across across the community. So, um, so the the uh, recognition that partnership is critically important, 
Um, and I would challenge our, our healthcare leaders to also think that sometimes that partnership will include those uh, who you may deem as a competitor. Uh, so, you know, one of the, uh, you know, greatest things that I'm proud of in my previous uh, uh, place of employment was the establishment of the One Charlotte Health Alliance, which actually brought together uh, two competitive health systems uh, to focus on improving the health and the life expectancy uh, of six public health priority zip code areas uh, working in conjunction with that local health department. Uh, and so that brought together significant investment from both of those health systems, both from a financial standpoint, but also from a resource standpoint. And again, addressing um, our own internal uh, policies that have put up barriers, um, particularly in, uh, in the realm of access to primary care uh, in those six zip codes. So, you know, I, I encourage uh, leaders to think about uh, their partnerships to be inclusive of all different type of, of partnerships. Before Micheline, before you, you know, I ask you to, to respond to that question as well. I think what you make me think of too, and this is my own experience, is I think the biggest mistake I've seen and experienced is when someone says they actually know the solution. I think to your point before, there are some evidence-based solutions like you were referring to. There are some things we know we we can do, like collect data and work off that data, engage patients, you know, customize care. So there are there are directions, but in terms of an, a solution, I think that is really a major caution for me. I, I think we have to go into this and say we actually don't know the solution, and our job now is to discover it and iterate it and develop it with experts like yourselves. Micheline, what about you in terms of cautions, mistakes, guidelines for leaders who want to, uh, in, in good faith, move forward? Yeah, I think that's such a good question. And, and I think that the, the, the way that you frame it is so dead on. So many times folks are looking at best practices, um, and that's great. Um, but I often find that the, that the sweet spot is really in, right, so, so can we identify the worst failures in many places um, for, for a variety of reasons? the least of which is not um, uh, just the, the, the fact of being able to, to make certain that others know that it's okay to wait in the water, right? Because even in the worst case scenarios and the worst failures, right, people still got over it and they made it to the next day. And I say that because of the fact that there are many who are afraid to do anything more than just issue this statement because either, um, quite frankly, if they take a look at their organization, what they see is the fact that their hierarchy um, is not particularly um, diverse, right? That they certainly weren't paying a particular amount of attention to this. Um, and so I think it's significant. I, I think that um, what my fellow panelists just said really about the recognition of those who, who are in this space and have done, done this work and then having others who, because now this is in vogue, decide that, you know, oh, they want to do it too. Um, you know, there's a way to, to widen the tent and still center Black voices, right? Um, and so I really want to encourage your listeners to really aim to do that. And if you don't know what that is, feel free to look it up, right? There's a lot of issues. Um, so, so a pain point, an issue that, that is, is um, troubling is when folks do no research on themselves and they approach someone and, you know, say, you know, I have no privilege. Why are people talking about this? I didn't grow up that wealthy, um, um, right? So there, there are, there's this crazy technologically um, advanced device called Google where people can look things up and actually, you know, um, will be able to develop a list of really great works in this space. And I'm not even just talking about some of the greats like um, Carol Anderson's White Rage or Ibram Kendi's 
uh, everyone is running to um, how to be an anti-racist. I happen to be a fan of SAMP from the beginning, um, but, but literally in healthcare, right? So you can take a look at, at, at really um, uh, um, the work by, by Dana Matthew Bowen, right? You can take a look at, at uh, Henrietta Washington's work um, on medical apartheid. Um, there, there's real work in this particular space. And as a result of that, you should really try um, deliberately to educate yourself. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, there's one thing that center Black voices, it's another one um, um, to, to, to add to the weathering, right? Right now, and I, I really want to say this as well, right now, your, your colleagues of color that are Black and brown, but especially those who are Black, which means they, they are African diasporan, um, Afro-Caribbean, African-American, African, what I will tell you is the fact that um, we are drained. It is a draining of a totally different kind. It is not that I am just physically exhausted. I am emotionally drained. I am spiritually zapped. Um, it's tired in a place that, that very few folks are willing to acknowledge are, are truly tired. And so one of the things that, that I've talked to, to our team about doing is, is really, right, we need to create, so what's the niche space? How, what are we creating in order to ensure not just that we are providing access through our behavioral health network for those who have you know, really need to build their resilience, et cetera, really need to recover from having been at the, the, the height of the pandemic of COVID, but also those who are suffering racial trauma. This is triggering for, for very many of us, right? Don't ask your employees to go out and tell a story of yet another issue of racial trauma. You just saw a man get shot in the back seven times. Before that, you saw someone kneel for nearly nine minutes on someone else's neck, right? Before that, like, we could go on, right? You, you, you've read story after story, right? You've seen video after video. So I'm not certain that it's okay to, to, to then subject more individuals to talking about their trauma their, and, and their trauma. Um, uh, you know, some people believe that, well, if they know that it's happening to someone who's close to them, listen, it is. Assume that, right? And making certain that, that as, we, as we go forward in this space, that we do so in a manner that reflects the fact that we are in just unconscionable pain and that we are still showing up and we're showing up, you know, um, by the bedside, we're showing up on your Zoom meeting, we're showing up right in your boardroom, right? We're showing up and we're delivering, we're being um, um, measured by the same, right, metrics and goals as our, our white counterparts who have the opportunity to engage in cognitive dissonance if, if and when they feel like, oh, I don't wanna hear about this anymore. Someone recently said to me, you know, it's, it's you know, I, I get it and it's important, but it's like, I'm tired, you know, I, I, I'm tired of hearing about racism. And so I had to say to them, yes, and imagine what it is like to live under the brutality of that monster every day until you die. And the fact that that day will be sooner for me than it will be for you. Right? As part of the virtue of everything else that we have said. So what I will tell you is, um, you know, to really make certain that you, A, when you walk into your meeting, every meeting, that you mention it. I don't care whether or not there's a member of your team who is, who is in and of that community or not, because you don't know who's married to whom. You don't know who's a father, daughter, son, or, or, or et cetera of whom. You don't know anything about that, but mention it. Do not let issues of racial injustice go and then go into your meeting and just do your daily agenda, because that silence feels like the violence that others who look like us are, are really experiencing on a daily basis, right? Understand what that means and that it's going to require you to feel uncomfortable and to wade into there anyway. You're uncomfortable, I'm terrified. How about that? I, I have a colleague who, who shared that he, um, 
that his life was threatened just the other day. That he went for coffee and his car was surrounded. And um, the issue there was that he, he actually lived in the neighborhood where that occurred. And so I think it's really keenly important. Now, now I share that one, but that's, that's, that's yet another story. There are so many others that happen to us on a daily basis that it's really keenly important that folks understand that, that when they don't want to hear it, they get to turn off the TV, that there are others. We don't ever get to do that. But we are terrified right now that, yes, there's a reason why policing is now being recognized by some as a social determinant of health, but that's not just law enforcement policing, right? Ahmaud Arbery was shot while out jogging by individuals who believed that they had the right to police black bodies. The same thing with Trayvon Martin, right? Right. The same thing with um, uh, Mr. Cooper by Ms. Cooper in Central Park in, in New York. So these are elements which compound upon one another. And not mentioning them, not checking in, I think, is with one another, with your team members, et cetera. Not recognizing that these add to the weathering of racism on a daily basis. We talk about how living under long-term chronic stress, what it can do to, to our bodies, to our, to our, to our, our physical realities. We, we, we acknowledge that, but there's a disconnect in understanding that living under racism is also living under long-term chronic stress. And we know that research has told us that that's even shown up, right, as early as in, as in the womb, right? So, so some, some of those errors is, is to try to look away. Don't try to look away. And make certain that you are asking yourselves the questions um, about the unit that you manage, the hospital system that you run, right? Is my system one which empowers? Is it one which creates safe environments? There are checklists that you can literally go through that in order to find that out and then deal with it when you find it. Micheline, thank you for, for being so honest and courageous to share your experience and, and the experience of others. I was speaking yesterday afternoon to a colleague, uh, a physician who's a black woman, uh, an amazing physician and uh, researcher and just incredible professional and uh, she said exactly the same thing you just said, not in the same way, but exactly the same thing along the lines of, she used the word we, we are just, we are exhausted. We can't take this anymore. It's just so draining. And, and it was interesting. She even shared a story. Uh, she and her husband were walking in a parking lot to get some exercise uh, after work. A police car came up and asked them what they were doing there, largely because they're black. You know, both professionals, both, uh, in fact, it was the office park that uh, I believe her husband works in. Uh, I think he's a computer engineer or something like that. And she, of course, is a, a nationally renowned physician. And, and this is what they're subjected to. I, you know, and I said to her, I just don't, I don't understand, actually. I, I can't, I, I hear you. I, I know what I would feel like if that happened to me continuously. Uh, I know that what that would do to my psyche. I can imagine what it would do to my psyche, what it would do to my physical health. So I think it's really important. And, and it, it really ties back into, you know, obviously you're talking about employees and providers and staff and, and that experience. And I think it ties, it goes right back to, to patients, to the people we take care of uh, who are subjected to that from the moment they are born. Dr. Cole, Alicia, I want to give you a chance to also respond to the door that uh, that Micheline opened up here. No, well, I have to say my uh, my good friend and and sister uh, said it so well, um, and I I think um, 
you know, the, the only thing that, that I would add is that um, you do have to be, as a leader, you have to be intentional about what your, your team is bringing with them to work. Um, and, um, and again, how, how that looks for you, I think that's uh, something for, for you to decide because it, you do wanna make sure that it's genuine um, and, and that um, you're coming across in a very uh, sympathetic uh, way. Um, but, you know, I, I, I echo everything that she said, um, you know, and, and for me, um, having an African-American um, husband and two African-American sons, um, it is a constant thread of fear. Anytime they leave the house, uh, anytime we leave the house, um, even in, you know, a community where we are known um, and that, you know, the, the children are known, um, but you just, you, you don't know, you really don't know. Um, and as a mother, you know, I think that's the, the other, um, you know, aspect to, to, to highlight here is that, you know, the fear that we, we live with um, as, the, as a mother to, to black and brown children, um, that it, it's a daily fear that you don't know when your children leave the house that they're gonna make it back safely. Um, and if that, if that, uh, them not making it back safely may, might actually be because of an interaction with a, a system that has been set up to, um, quite frankly, over-police um, black and brown bodies. I mean, that's how that entire system, you know, came to be. So, um, and yet for others, that system is seen as uh, keeping them safe. And, and that's just not, um, that's not how it's viewed in most uh, black and brown households um, across the country. And I think we've seen that play out um, multiple times over the past uh, couple of months. And um, so, yeah, so it's draining, um, but there is also a constant, you know, for being, um, truly vulnerable, uh, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a constant level of fear. It, this isn't an issue of politics and it isn't an issue of political correctness or anything like that. I mean, this is just, you know, really about our humanity. And um, I think um, even as a white a person, I think the word, you know, Micheline used the word before, traumatized. You know, I've, I've looked at these videotapes repeatedly in part because they're everywhere in part because I've sought them out. But, you know, the uh, Ahmed Arbery, uh, I just kept on staring at that video over and over and over again, watching a young man, a black man going out for a jog and just being killed in cold blood for absolutely no reason other than the fact that he was black. And and all the the, the ridiculous sequelae from that and how it was responded to, it just, it was traumatic. It's It continues to be traumatic. And in the same with George Floyd, and and you look at that, and you, and your heart is breaking. It changes you. It changes all of us. You know, uh, Jacob Blake. My wife told me the story before I heard about it. And I said, "Wait, Seth, I I couldn't even understand it. It it didn't make any sense to me." And then I saw it, and I said, "I just 
you know, in disbelief. And so I think there's something, I don't know if, if there's something different about our times, but to recognize that, that there is a trauma happening in our society and this conversation it needs to happen here and, and much, much more. I guess it underscores the importance for me of the work that both of you are doing and so many others out there across the country. I, I think just about every healthcare system I'm aware, actually every healthcare system I'm aware of is intent on doing the right thing here. And it underscores the need, the conversation we've had is underscores the need for all that. And it really does reframe so many uh, issues that you know, we, we thought about differently before. We, we changed the, the whole tenor of this conversation. I don't believe you can talk about social determinants of health the way you talked about it six months or a year ago. It, it makes no sense anymore. Um, we have to change the way we're thinking about it. I, I think we have, to, we have to come to grips with the fact that we, we just don't know how to solve this. We have to learn it together. And, and I think also, and I, I learned this from both of you watching you and, and watching your work, is that um, we have to move from, from the problem to the solution, but in a systemic, sustained way. And I think that's what I'd love to see more of. And, and maybe I want to give you both a chance to have a final comment about that, and in particular about how we can do this in a systematic and, and sustained way so that Dr. Cole, you know, in our first few conversations that was, we were preparing for this dialogue in this panel, you, you know, again, you, you said to us, what is going to be different about now than it was, you know, in the 1960s? I mean, things came and went. How are the woke going to stay awake? And so let me end with that question for both of you. There's a a lot of different things that go through my mind, but, um, you know, I'll specifically um, try to focus on, again, healthcare systems and, and healthcare delivery. Um, so I think, one, you have to make sure that you're continually educating yourself and your team about these issues. Um, and so, you know, figuring out for your organization what that looks like is critically important. So it can't just be it's the topic of today. It needs to be that it's actually built into, you know, the learning modules or the required employee uh, yearly, uh, you know, modules that, that we have to do. And, and that's not enough. Let me be clear. Um, that's not enough, but it is at least a start. Um, and so thinking through how do you continue to educate yourself and educate your team about these issues. Um, the second thing I would say is that we need to clearly embed social determinants of health screening, um, assessment, and then uh, referral um, for the social determinants into the standard way that we do medicine in this country. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited. My, uh, my CEO, Lloyd Dean, actually just pinned an article on uh, LinkedIn discussing Healthy People 2030. Um, and the title of his, his article was, it was uh, you know, how addressing social determinants actually rebuilt the American health system. Uh, and, and, and I challenge us to that, you know, I, and those who have heard me speak before, I often talk about these uh, broken systems um, and how we are all leading in broken systems. And we often are training new and upcoming leaders to lead in broken systems. 
And what we really should be doing, uh, getting to an earlier point that Micheline said around design thinking, is how do we actually create innovators and engineers <laughs> to think through creating new, equitable, and, and fair systems? Um, and, and so, you know, I just, I, I echo that um, addressing social determinants and really kind of flipping the way that we even think about health and how we take care of people uh, would actually cause a significant shift in the American healthcare system. Um, and so I would just argue that, that that needs to happen. And then the third thing, I would be remiss uh, <laughs> to not, again, uh, focus on data. Um, we, if, if you want to stay woke, uh, having that data in front of you that reminds you on a daily basis that there is still work to do uh, is critically important. Um, and so, you know, I would argue that um, that really look at how you're, um, you know, uh, segmenting or stratifying your quality measures, both on a hospital inpatient side of things on an ambulatory care side of things, and even out in the community, um, because all of that data exists, it's readily available, um, and um, you know it's really hard to ignore something uh, if it's staring you in the face. <laughs> so I would just um, really encourage people to um, to really be intentional about how they segment their their data. Um, so I love the, the concept of um, so how do the woke right stay um, awake this time? I love 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 that. Um, and so um, I, I will say this first of all, I, I kind of want to pick up where she just left off, my dear friend Dr. Cole, because I love the aspect of data collection um, and really making certain that we're scrubbing the data in in the exact right way. There have been often times that I found at least in in you know, not just dealing with healthcare within within uh, uh, delivery systems, but even on the government side, right? That oftentimes we are thinking about the kind of data that we want after we have already actually um, uh, called it. So making certain that we we are thinking about that long in advance about all of the ways in which we want to be able to utilize data. But then, you know, taking a look at where we are at this day uh, and time, right? We are still in the middle of a global pandemic and an international awakening. And so as we do that, um, you know, we've seen in areas like telemedicine, right, that it's, it's finally begun to have an uptick in a variety of ways. But, but we need to really be cognizant of making certain that we are collecting data in a real way, even in that avenue, because as we turn our attention towards innovation, the issue has been that most of the telemedicine entities that are out there um, uh, that were ready to just kind of be plug and play during the, the height of the pandemic, the issue is that they don't necessarily collect that data, right? And so um, uh, to that end, we need to make certain that, that we are, are not contributing further to exacerbating um, disparities as a result of permitting the data divide, um, uh, which will come from the digital divide, right? Um, and so, you know, what's really interesting, I actually traditionally say that the system's not broken, it's, it's designed for, for these outputs. And that comes from, of course, um, what I laid out earlier at, our, at the top of our time that you so kindly permitted me to be with you. Um, but I love what, what Dr. Cole just said about the way in which, um, you know, we, we are 
teaching in broken systems. Um, you know, the way, the reason why I, I often say that it's about that, that the system um, is designed this way is because of, of right, really understanding um, just from the legal viewpoint uh, about the way in which certain laws were passed that, that in order to get the votes passed through Congress, right, Southern congressional um, representatives said, you know, black people cannot get X, right? Um, so whether or not it was land grants or, or um, access to, to GI Bill. I mean, we, we know that these things happened. Um, and so just really paying attention to, to system redesign and the way in which that, that needs to occur. I, I'm going to give you something really, you know, listen, um, as folks are, are, are figuring this out today, what do I do today as I, you know, rest my head and get up tomorrow? Uh, I really want to encourage um, uh, our listeners to think about the teams that they lead, right? Are they, in fact, hire teams in order um, and create an environment for folks to be, um, uh, to take risk in order to be truly innovative in order to address these issues? Because if they haven't, then the issue is that while folks are woke right now, they'll be woke outside of our healthcare systems and we need them to be woke inside, right? Um, and quite frankly, do these teams um, look like the communities that we seek to, to aid, to help? Um, to uh, dismantle racism and the effect of racism in. And I say that because what we have seen, at least in the space uh, around innovation even, right, you take a look at, at artificial intelligence, right, AI and the way in which implicit bias um, has played, um, uh, it has played and is playing out, and the fact that they realize that, that they've had all white teams who have, have, who have utilized, uh, or all majority teams, monolithic teams, that have created um, devices which, when it comes to people of, of, of color, right, cannot distinguish people apart. Um, you know, I, I say that because it's really keenly important that we are ensuring that our teams are comprised of individuals who, yes, represent the demographics that we're looking to, to um, affect change in regarding health disparities and health inequities, but also and separately, right, the lived experience of poverty really important that folks understand that black is, black is not synonymous with low income or poverty stricken, but that they are both categories that you need to ensure are represented on the composition of your teams. Or else, quite frankly, you know, you're, you're making a pathway in order to address these issues from folks who actually do not know the issues. It is one thing to have studied poverty. It is another to have lived it. It is one thing to study racism. It is another to live it. And so, you know, I, I say these things because I actually think that it's going to matter a great deal on how we, we foster the approach that we have within our healthcare systems of addressing these issues. And I get concerned when I, I know how monolithic um, not the healthcare industry is, you know, broadly by and of itself, but, just, but undoubtedly in the hierarchy of administration, right? Um, and how it is and who it is who's literally going to be a part of having a real voice in, in ushering in um, the new redesign where all individuals get to grow up healthy, strong for an equitable um, and sustainable future. Micheline, I think you've just brought us to a very good ending point here. I, I thank you for, for your eloquence and uh, I, I don't, there's nothing I could add to that and to what Dr. Cole said. Um, I just want to, you know, thank you for both of you for sharing with us. And I think not just your scholarship and your expertise and, and your experience uh, as professionals, but also for going on this, uh, what is clearly a, 
you know, a very personal and emotional and spiritual journey as well. And to be quite honest with you, I'm a little bit emotionally drained right now. And I think uh, it's because you, you took us on that journey and expended the energy and shared with us. So I just want to say thank you to both of you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Seth, for uh, having us on this lovely panel. And, and honestly, I think having the courage to kind of yeah. shift the, the conversation. Um, those, are, those are, you know, that's a perfect example when we talk about, you know, this notion of allyship <laughs> that's going around right now, um, because you did not have to do that. So um, I just want to acknowledge and thank you for your, your courage and your willingness to shift the conversation to, um, to have this uncomfortable dialogue. So friends and colleagues, uh, I, I hope you had the opportunity to listen to the entirety of this interview uh, with Micheline Davis and Dr. Alicia Cole, and I hope you benefited from this really unique panel discussion. And if it made you uncomfortable at times, that's okay. I think that's needed. Uh, I know I felt uncomfortable uh, as well as uh, you can tell, quite emotionally drained towards the end of it. This is such a critically important issue in healthcare today in our society at large. It needs to be uh, talked about, discussed, better understood. We need experts like the two people I was speaking to who have spent years not only studying the topic, but immersed in trying to do something about it. And that's really the point that in order to do something about it, we have to understand it. As I mentioned earlier, I would love to hear your feedback on this discussion. Please um, ping me through LinkedIn or if you have my email address. My plan is uh, going to be to interview more experts in the arena of racism in healthcare and racism in general. And I hope to post those in the uh, winter and spring episode. And as I do every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and, and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. This is Zev Newworth on Creating a New Healthcare. Until next time, be safe and be well.